Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. We're so glad that you are here today. Over the last few weeks, we have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and I would encourage you now to go ahead and take your pew Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be reading a piece of this towards the, the middle of the chapter, but it is relevant to a larger discussion of what we have been talking about for the last few weeks. But I want to begin by thanking all of you all for the, the wonderful wishes and wonderful uh, thoughts that you have sent to me and Morgan after the celebration of our 30th anniversary. Morgan and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary just a few weeks ago. And you know, it's interesting, ever since that time, I have gotten, had so many people who have come to me asking me, what is the secret to a 30-year marriage, as if there's like some magic bullet or just some one special ingredient that brings it all together. And, and I know that there are people in this room who have been married much longer than I have. And, and so I, I just, you know, I, I know that every person who's been married for any length of time who is in a, a wonderful, thriving marriage, that we've all got probably different answers to this. Um, everybody's answer is a little bit different, but I think that, that really, it's, there's no one thing that makes a marriage successful. Rather, the way I thought about it is that there are rather a thousand little things that all happen and they're all washed over in a deep pool and spring of grace. So you have to show a lot of grace to one another, mostly Morgan uh, showing grace towards me because I'm the one who needs it most often. I mean, for example, I just found out that today is actually appreciation of, is actually Wife Appreciation Day. This is, somebody told me that, I did not know this is one of these, a, a new holiday that they put on the calendar. So I'm glad to know, I'm glad to know now I can just limit it to one day a year and be, uh, no, of course not. But, but you know, what is it? It's, you know, what makes a great marriage? It's when, it's when you take those thousand little things that happen every day and you just, you live in a context of grace where, where you love each other and you protect each other and you respect each other. But I think if I really drill down into this theologically, if I were to ask what is it that really keeps our marriage going and, and what it is that really centers us, it is, at the, at the heart of it, is remembering this. It's remembering who we are and who we are not. Meaning it's important that I remember who I am and who I'm not. I remember who Morgan is and who she is not. It's important that we remember who God is and that we are not him. But it's about remembering that before my wife was my wife, that she was a called and beloved daughter of God, that she is an heir to the king. That is who she is. There are other things that she is not but we need to remember that those things that she is not, the things that we often, the roles we often assign to our spouses, either by cultural convention or just prejudice or things like that, we need to remember that those things are not what keep us going. Rather, it's that we remember who God made us to be and who he did not make us to be. It's all about remembering and loving one another for what we are and then even loving each other for what we are not. But... As I said, most of it is about remembering who God is and that we are not God and that I can never be to her what God should be to her. I think it's a very similar question when asked, 
what is the secret to living as a follower of Jesus Christ in a non-Christian world? In large part, the answer is the same. It's about remembering who you are and whom God made you to be, who others are, and who God made them to be. And most importantly, it's about remembering who God is and that none of us can claim that name, title, or sovereignty. Paul meets this issue in 1 Corinthians in an ongoing discussion of behavior, morality, culture, and sexuality. So if you look in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, after, actually in the middle of a long dissertation on marriage, you'll see that he writes this beginning in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the, in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And so, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain in God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. So speak, Lord, for your servants are, rest, are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. In chapter 7, we find ourselves walking into the middle of an ongoing conversation. It's one that we've been preaching about and talking about for the last couple of weeks. But it's a conversation about sex and morality that began in chapter 6. A conversation in which the apostle thunders the dire warning, flee from sexual morality. But this chapter, in some ways, is about sexual morality. And in spite of the harsh propaganda, the historic propaganda to the contrary, we see in this chapter, chapter 7, in the beginning verses, that God is not anti-sex. Rather, God has provided that gift within a proper context. So God is not anti-sex. Rather, Paul is saying that sex is like fire. As long as it stays in the fireplace... In marriage, where it's supposed to be, it can keep us warm. It can cook our food. It can fascinate us. It can entertain us. But if it gets out of the fireplace, it can burn your whole house down. Now, in the verses that follow, Paul makes the argument that, that there are advantages to being married and that there are disadvantages to being married. But even though the issue of sex and ma marriage matters to God... There seems to be a deeper issue at hand in chapter 7. 
I believe that what Paul is really interested in and is foundational to all these other issues that we've been discussing thus far, from unity to sex, what is underlying all of those issues is our understanding of our identity. He writes this, that more important than your being married or unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, which means Jewish or Gentile, even more important than being slave or free is that we remember whom God has made you and claimed you to be. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And so in Galatians 3, which we read in our call to worship today, as Paul says, you know, what do all these other identities, slave, free, Jew, Greek, male, female, what do those mean? What do these identities mean that divide us compared to the identity that we have in Christ that unites us? What is the, what is the better thing? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and which God has called him. More important than any of these marital, ethnic, or social status identities is the issue of our identity in Christ. So what is identity? Our identity, simply put, is who you are, who we are, who I am. But to understand what Paul is saying in this passage, we need to understand the distinction between two types of identity. The distinction between our foundational identity and our other identities. The primary, the foundational identity we have and the one with which the Apostle Paul is most concerned is our foundational identity. This is the identity given to us by God. Paul says that the deepest level of our identity is the one to which God has assigned us and called us. The one he's made us to be, he's assigned us to be, and called us to be. First, he says that we are to be grounded with the way that we are or in the way that we are assigned. Now the word here in Greek, the word meridzo, actually has to do with the assignment of a position or a role. So for example, if the coach tells you to go out and play quarterback, that, doesn't, that means that he doesn't want you to be playing wide receiver. If, he, if the boss sends you out to do a job, to, to meet with an accounting client, he doesn't want you polishing, you know, polishing the windows. It's about the substance of what we are called to do, but it's also about the limitations of, of not doing other things so that you can be the thing that God has called you to be. So it's not only about substance, it's about limitations. A helpful way to think about that is what has God assigned to you? And how has he designed you for that task? He's designed you, he's assigned you certain things and not other things. The sense of the word here is that this is how we are made. In other words, this is what I am and this is what I am not. Think about it in terms of the fact that you are a human being and not a fish. 
You were designed to live on the land and to breathe the air. You were not designed to live deep underwater and breathe in the water. That's not how you were designed. That is not the role to which you were assigned. But he also says that we were called. There's the way we were made, and then there's a way we are called. And the word calling has to do with our purpose. Why did God make us like this? Not only why has God made you at all, but what has he called you to be? Now we see this word, we hear this word calling, and we always tend to think of it in terms of a ministry or a vocational setting. This is my job. This is my calling. This is my ministry. But really, this word calling is about our deeper core, our our core identity beneath and foundational to all of that. Because before God called you to any job or any role or any ministry, he called you, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So before he called anyone in the ministry or into a particular job or vocation, he called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Before I was ever called to be a pastor, I was called to be a child of God. Before I was ever called to be a husband, I was called to be a child of God. Before I was ever called to be a father, I was called to be a child of God. Before I was ever called to be anything, I was called to be a child of God. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, not for my ministry, not for my job, not for my security, but for my sins. So that I could have the relationship with God that God the Father created me to have. So what is our foundational identity? What does it look like? Who has God made us to be? Or what has God made us to be? First of all, we know from Genesis that we are created in the image of God. We are his image bearers in the world. We are his likeness sent here to represent him among all the other pieces of his creation. So when we look upon another person, we are not just looking at a, an unorganized mass of cells, the product of evolution. We are looking at someone who was created in the image of God. But not only that, it's not just who we were made to be, it's who we are called to be, who we have been called to be. And who he has called you to be is this. He's a call, he has called you to be his adopted child through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He's talking with kind of some legal language here, but then it becomes very personal, very familiar. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but you are a son, and if a son, and then an heir through God. You're not just a citizen of the kingdom. You're not just, a, you're, you're not just a, an interloper. You're not just a redeemed mis misfit. You are 
a child of God and a son of the king. Your deepest identity, your deepest calling is to remember that you are a child of God and that God made you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he designed you first and foremost for a relationship with him. And that is something that no one can take away from you, not even you. This is your foundational identity. But what about those other identities? I mean, after all, I'm not only known and I do not only or exclusively know myself as a child of God. I also have relational identities. I'm a husband to Morgan. I'm a father to Bo and Elle. I'm a son to Bobby and Betsy. I'm a brother to Ben, a pastor to this congregation, and a friend to many of you, most of you. I hope all of you. (laughs) But we also have achievement-related identities. He's a Heisman winner. He's a Nobel Prize winner, state champion, valedictorian, or a school identity. How many of you connected with your school identities yesterday during the football game? Some of you are trying to deny those identities right now. Your political identity, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever. Your social identity. These are my people. These are the people with whom I associate. These are the clubs I'm in. Your vocational identity. I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a pastor, I'm an engineer, I'm a policeman. Your ethnic identity, I'm black, I'm white, Native American, Asian American. Your gender identity, we'll come back to that one. The problem is that often, We let these other identities take the place of our foundational identity. The problem comes when we let the identities that we make for ourselves or that others make for us override or supersede the identity for which we were restored and created, called and assigned by God through Jesus Christ. So it's not just about the fact of our identity, it's about the priority of the identities in our lives. There's nothing wrong with being a doctor, but when being a doctor becomes the thing that defines you and becomes more important to you than your relationship with the Father, that puts you at at odds with God and that relationship is broken. There's nothing wrong with being a husband or wife But when someone's husband or wife becomes the thing that defines them and becomes more important to you than your relationship with the father, then it is broken. You know, we joke around all the time and say, well, who are you? I don't have any other identity other than I'm Morgan's husband or that she is my wife. I mean, that's funny sometimes. It's a good way to break the ice, but but do we really believe that? I hope not. There's nothing wrong with being a Republican or a Democrat But when that identity becomes more important to you than your relationship with the Father, then that relationship is broken. When these other identities compete with what God has made and designed us to be, they undermine, override, and distract us, even and especially if they are contrary to God's will and God's word. 
Paul even goes on to give an example in this chapter. He gives an example in verses 25 through 40 that marriage can actually be a distraction if you let it, if it becomes an idol that supersedes your relationship with God. So don't make an idol of other identities. Now, why is this so important? It's important because the way we see ourselves and the way we see God in large part determines the way we approach everything from sex to religion. The way we see ourselves and the way we see ourselves in relation to God sets us up and becomes the foundation for our relationships, how we see and treat other people, how we see and treat the world. Pastor and author David Tripp discusses that, uh, Paul David Tripp discusses this in his book, Lead. And I'm going to make a a lengthy quote here for a second, so please bear with me, but it's worth hearing. Dr. Tripp writes this, he says, since the fall, people look horizontally for what they are designed to find vertically. They ask people, places, and things to do for them what only identity in the Lord can do. And what people fail to understand is that whenever or wherever you look for identity, that will then exercise rulership over your heart and in so doing will direct the way you live your life. Things were never meant to be sources of human identity because just that thing creates endless layers of difficulty and brokenness. In other words, he says, a job is a wonderful provision from God, but if it becomes your identity, it will leave you regularly unhappy and will destroy your family. Your marriage is a significant human relationship, but if it becomes your identity, you will ask your spouse to be your personal Messiah, placing on your spouse a burden that he or she will never be able to bear. Your body is a significant aspect of who you are. But if you look to your body as your primary source of identity, then aging, weakness, and disease will rob you of your sense of self. Depression, or for that matter, any other disease, is a deeply personal and powerful emotional experience. But if you take it on as your identity, it will do you even further spiritual and emotional harm. He says, there is always a temptation this side of eternity to look for identity horizontally. But looking there never delivers what you seek and never results in a harvest of good fruit. Now this passage has a particular cultural relevance for us right now. Because right now, we are in a critical cultural crisis about identity, particularly as it relates to gender. Now, I know that this is a heartbreaking subject. And for many people, people in this room, people that I talked to earlier, people who saw us online, I know that for many people, including some of you, This is a tragedy in your own life because it involves people that you know and that you love dearly. And so how should we, as followers of Jesus Christ, respond to this identity crisis? 
First of all, I want to address anyone who's struggling with gender identity. And I want to say this. You are loved by God, and you are his precious child. Your deepest identity, your deepest calling, is not the one that you assign to yourself or that others assign to you, just as that is not my deepest calling or anyone else's deepest calling. Your deepest calling is the identity that the Father of love, your creator, your redeemer, and your sustainer has assigned to you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he made you male or female. And you are his cherished, beloved child. And with you, he is well pleased. And you need to hear from me right now that he made you and he designed you for a relationship with him. So please don't buy the lie. Do not buy the lie that God has rejected you or that he isn't calling you back to what he has called and assigned you to be. Do not buy the lie that you were something else other than what God created you to be. It will not solve the problems you believe it will fix or satisfy the needs you believe it will satisfy. It just creates new issues because maintaining that new identity takes up all of your capacity. You're not going to find peace by undermining or trying to cover up your true identity. It's not about what you wear on your body, but about what you believe and know and the truth of your soul, your mind, and spirit. Ask yourself, if you are trying to change your identity to deal with some other issue, how's that working for you? Are you more at peace? Did it actually change anything or help you? Or do the issues still exist and persist? You have been sold a false medicine by a fraudulent caretaker. I love you too much to lie to you. I'm not condemning you. I love you. And I'm going to love you without lies. Your identity was not assigned at birth. It was assigned at the creation it was assigned in eternity by the heart of the Father who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. How you feel and who you are are two different things. Our Father is not the creator of confusion. He created order out of chaos. It was the serpent who confused things. It was sin that mixed everything up. And whatever condition you are in, your Father wants to gently draw you. He has called you out of that darkness into his marvelous light, the marvelous light of his love. The problem comes when we let 
the identities that we make for ourselves or that others make for us override or supersede the identity for which we were created and restored by God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, please do not be distracted by the agendas of other masters, of people who tell you, who want to tell you that you are not what God called you and made you to be. 1 Corinthians 7, 23 says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So don't buy the lie. To those who are wondering what this has to do with them, I plead to you, plead with you, plead to the church, do not condemn the confused. Love them. Even the most strident ones. Jesus met and spent time with confused and broken people all the time, and he never condemned any of them because he knew the real depth of their pain. People aren't just changing their pronouns because they've discovered something real about themselves. No, as a matter of fact, they're changing them because they are confused and they've forgotten who they are or they've been deceived and they've been lied to about who they are. Not just in terms of their sexual and gender identity, but in terms of their core identity. They've tried to find people who will see them and listen to them in their deepest hurts, but we've ignored them and pushed them aside instead of drawing them back into their true created identity in Jesus Christ, the identity for which they were assigned and called. They've forgotten that we do not make and design ourselves. It's not about declaring what you are. Ultimately, it's God who makes and calls us. And because he is the one who made us, he's also the one who calls us back to him. You know, the confusion about identity breaks my heart because in their desperate desire to find some clarity about their lives, people are buying into the lies that ultimately only deepen the chaos and the confusion and the lostness of their situation. Sadly, we in the church, unfortunately, our response is too often treated as simply a political issue when in fact it's a deeply spiritual health issue. It's an emotional abuse and manipulation issue. It is a grooming issue. It's a fear and brokenness issue. People are suffering. And they're going through this confusion with this level of confusion. And they are deeply lost. And deserve not our condemnation or scorn, but our love. Next. Don't. Promote the propaganda. The people who are promoting this kind of confusion and just going along with this as though it's healthy and shaming and forcing others to go along with it, well, I don't have and I don't know what to say or how to finish this sentence in an appropriate way from the pulpit. And I know that some of you are doctors and teachers and psychologists and in other roles, and I know you all, but I'm calling you to call your professions on the carpet because there is propaganda that is being promoted 
and lies that are being endorsed that is destroying lives. And if doctors and psychologists don't understand the realities, then you need to give up your license and stop practicing and leave us all alone. Stop this, whether you're a politician or a teacher, whoever, stop the propaganda. And finally, we have to love the lost and pray for the parents and families and friends of those who are having to deal with this stuff. I guarantee you, this is breaking their hearts. Part of, the prop, uh, part of the cruelty of the propaganda of this issue is that the families who are dealing with children and loved ones, those who are trapped in this confusion, they need your prayer and compassion. Because right now we live in a twisted world where identity confusion is celebrated. Where medical and psychological professionals normalize this confusion because they, are, they, they either believe it or they've been bullied into it by a culture and a profession and by their peers. I want to draw what might be to some a, a ham-fisted or maybe even a, an inappropriate analogy, but I'm going to say it anyway. If a family loses a child to cancer, or if a child is suffering with it, with cancer, our culture and our people rally around that family. But if a child is suffering or lost in gender confusion, people on the right blame and condemn, people on the left celebrate it, and the parents are in the middle being told that there's no problem here, you ought to be celebrating it, and if you don't, shame on you, your children will be taken from you. They will leave you or they will die. Our culture tells us, tells them, from the media to schools to the psychological and medical communities, that this is something that must be accepted and even celebrated. And if you don't, you're the one who is wrong. We have to pray for the parents who are dealing with this. We have to pray for the friends who are dealing with this, with the sisters and children who are dealing with this. I want to close this sermon, but not close this conversation, but I want to close this sermon with the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. You may be struggling with your identity. Someone you know may be struggling with your identity. You may have even forgotten your name and used another one. But you know who hasn't forgotten your name? the God of Jacob who created you, the God of Israel who formed you, the God of Jesus who redeemed you, who has called you by name because he loves you and you are his. Your deepest identity, your deepest calling is to remember that you are a child of God and God made you and designed you for a relationship with him. Know who you are. 
and know who you are not. Don't let other lesser assignments and purposes override and undermine what God has designed and called you to be. You were bought with a price. Do not be bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each of you was called, there, let him remain with God. Know who you are. You pray with me. God, we know that you love us where you find us. But we also know that you love us too much to leave us there. And I pray, oh God, that whether whether we are struggling with these issues or whether we are just witnessing them from the outside, that you would make us a people of compassion, a people of your grace, a people of your great good news, a people who understand that each person, no matter, no matter what they're struggling with, that each person is your precious child. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to love them as Jesus loved them, to pray for them as Jesus prayed for them, to serve them. Help us, O oh Lord, to suffer even the slings and arrows of a culture that might want to cancel us for saying these things. But help us in all things to speak your truth and love. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.